gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And thanks for joining us. I hope... Uh, you listened to last week's episode, which we played a sermon from Rachel's pastor, Todd Bordeaux. And one of the reasons that I wanted to play that sermon is when I heard it for the first time, which was the week that uh, he preached it, I thought, wow, this really fits into so much of what we've been talking about here on this podcast. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely go back and listen to that. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that uh, really is kind of Rachel's wheelhouse, something that she's done a lot of uh, research on and even writing on, so which we'll include in the episode notes. We're going to be talking about natural theology and ontology. And I will actually say one of the resources that will be helpful in this topic is Rachel's book. So I'm going to be letting her do a lot of the talking today just because she know that knows this topic really well. She had a great article on White Horse Inn blog recently, which I'm going to link in the episode notes. So that one, we're going to have several resources in the episode notes. If you only read one, read that one because I, I found that article extremely helpful. So we're going to start by talking about natural theology, and that might be something that's a new idea to some of you. Maybe it's not something you've thought about. So we really want to do just kind of a good introduction to what natural theology is. So Rachel, why don't you tell us what is natural theology? I think it's helpful. And this is one of those places that, um, you know, I feel like I have a, a good kind of basic understanding of natural theology. Yeah, it's not what we'll be talking about here is not comprehensive. I'm sure there are more and, and, and better resources out there if you want to get into it more and really look into, you know, there's been a lot of study done in it. But um, kind of a, a general overview, um, 
using a, a, a you know, dictionary definition here. Uh, natural theology, uh, and this is a quote, is a program of inquiry into the existence and attributes of God without referring or appealing to any divine revelation. So basically the idea is, what can we learn about God by looking at the world around us without using uh, scripture or special revelation uh, to um, inform our understanding. And it's not that it's opposed to special revelation. It's usually considered to be kind of um, complementary to it. It's supposed to go along with it, alongside it. Um, but it's just, it's an area of study that looks at what's around us and says, what can we know about God, about ourselves, about the world without uh, in addition to what can we learn from scripture. So, and we'll use some of these uh, resources that in this show notes. So that one comes from a, a theology, uh, like encyclopedia. Um, there are also some other articles that are really helpful here and some other, um, I think there's a, a book chapter and some other things that we'll be cl- we're linking from or linking to. Uh, I think there's also one eventually from um, Michael Horton. I remember correctly. So, some of what happened over time, um, if you're going back to like the, the Greeks and their philosophy, so even apart, not just Christians talking about what can we know f- about the world from nature, this was an area of study even, uh, you know, apart from Christianity within the Greeks. You see it with Aristotle. Um, there's a one article by Scott Swain on natural theology. And he talks about that Aristotle's arguments for the existence of God uh, came to be called natural theology because it argued from features of nature. And this was later built on uh, by various scholars through medieval, through more recent scholarship. Um, Aquinas talked about things as being there are two sorts of truths about God, uh, things that we could know from nature, things that we could know from special revelation. So, in, de- in defining natural theology... Scott Swain says, natural theology teaches that God is what God is, the nature of human beings, the moral law, and general principles regarding a well-ordered human society. Um, uh, in building, you see this in Romans 1, uh, it talks about how um, you know that we are without excuse because we can see from nature that God exists and that we should worship him. It's building from there. Um, also, you think about in the Psalms when it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? So these are ways in which scripture talks about that God's handiwork and that God himself and who he is and that we should worship him. These are things that are visible to us in nature um, and in, in the things around us. Another useful resource that we'll, we'll link to is an article written by uh, uh, Bill Dennison on natural and special revelation. And uh, what he says is that natural revelation is a distinct and separate revelation communicating God's imprint upon the created universe, whereas special revelation is a distinct and separate revelation communicating God's saving activity to humanity. Uh, though distinct and separate, the two revelations are complementary and do not contradict each other. So, Rachel, I think everything that you said was was really, really helpful um, and easy to understand because I know this is, I think this is one of those things that we're aware of it, but maybe not the sort of thing that we necessarily 
study. It's not a common topic, at least in, in the Facebook group. And yet, you know, as you said, this is something that we can go all the way back to the early church and even even people that um, aren't even Christians that talking about it. And even back to Calvin, too. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things you hear about it more in discussions, or I feel like you hear about it more in discussions about uh, like the what we can learn from science, right? So when you're talking about creation or evolution or science or in those kinds of discussions, there'll be, there are people that talk about, they talk about the two books, right? We learn from scripture and we learn from nature, right? And so the, I think people may be familiar with having heard some of these concepts, um, even though not necessarily all, in all these terms. And and recently, which we'll get into in a little bit, I've heard it discussed a lot when we're talking about ontology and some of the men-women discussions. So what sorts of things can we learn from nature? I liked an article that uh, and I said that Michael Horton wrote on natural theology and some of the limits of natural theology. And he addresses it from what uh, Calvin has written in these areas. And so one thing that he says is that Calvin says there's a great deal of common ground in creation for agreement on general principles of morality, justice, beauty, even truth. Right? He says one doesn't require special revelation in order to create a reasonably just society, a beautiful work of art, or even a common sense of morality based on the law written on the conscience. And this is where you know we talk about Christians working together for uh, for a particular good, right? So people that want to um, feed the hungry or help the homeless, or even in things like in pro-life causes where people think that abortion is wrong for various reasons, not necessarily all religious reasons, right? Or people who are fighting against racism or for justice in various themes, right? These are things that Christians and non-Christians can agree on that there are you know, general things that are true in the world or good in the world. We can look at a piece of artwork by, you know, Monet, and say this is a beautiful painting, and it was a beautiful painting no matter what philosophy or religion Monet held to. Or we can look at the pyramids and say this is an incredible um, structure and, and the beauty of it. And you know, so there are things like this in in what's right and wrong, things that are beautiful, things that are true, justice. Um, you know, just like you know, most societies have some kind of legal. Issue, legal uh, statutes on it's wrong to steal and murder, it's wrong to um, commit adultery in a lot of societies. You know, so those kinds of things do show up, even though we know truth about them from Scripture. There are things that exist in, in the, the common grace and, and God having written things on our hearts and, and shown us things in nature. And these are things that we can, and it gives us a good way to talk to people who are not believers, because we can talk about things that they would understand Um and we're not just so removed from each other that we can't even understand each other uh, and, and discuss the world. Rachel, there's a, a quote from your article from White Horse Inn that I'd like to read. From our observations, we can make generalizations about men and women, boys and girls. Men tend to be physically bigger and stronger. Women tend to be smaller and physically vulnerable. Boys may prefer playing with cars and tend to turn any household object into a weapon. Girls may like playing with baby dolls and pretending to be a mommy, which actually reminds me when my oldest son was two, got his first set of those Duplos, those big, bigger Legos. I, 
he made a gun. I I don't even know how he knew what that was. <laughs> like I'm sitting here thinking, how do you know <laughs> what that is? Um, but that this is some examples where you know you'll see some of those sorts of generalizations out there. It might be uh, there might be some differences in in how we describe them depending you know the society and. But what are the limits, Rachel, of natural theology? Because there's obviously. Natural theology only tells us some things. Well, sure. And, and going along with what you said, another thing I say in the article, you know, Colleen and I both have uh, households of boys, right? And so comparing notes with our friends who have households of girls, there are a lot of differences about what it is to raise a group, a family of boys or a family of girls. And, you know, we're not arguing that there, there aren't differences in this discussion. So, but, you know, there is a limit to what we can learn from nature and from around us. And the limits come for a variety of reasons. First off, we live in a fallen world, a world affected by sin. So not only are we as fallen sinful humans looking at the world around us, but the world itself bears the scars of sin and and death and decay. And so there are things that we can, when we look at the things around us, they reflect the way things are now because of the fall and not necessarily all that what was intended in creation when creation was all very good. Um, you know, we know that death is not the way it was created, that life was created to be. Life, death is a result of the fall. I'm not saying that the world as we are in now is like plan B, but there are changes that came as a result of the fall and of sin. The effect of sin on us, um, as we believe in, uh, total depravity, not that we are all as bad as we could possibly be, but that we all aspects of us as humans are affected by the fall. Because all aspects are affected, then our ability to reason is also affected. Uh, and so that when we look at the world, uh, we may or may not interpret correctly what's there to be seen. And you see this uh, in in Romans 1 when when Paul says that, you know, while nature declares that there is a God and that we should worship him and who he is, in our fallen state, apart from the work of the Spirit, we don't worship him. In fact, we go ahead and worship the created things instead of the creature, instead of the creator. And uh, Scott Swain points this out in his article, I mean, talking about uh, natural theology, and he says, in the state of nature after the fall, natural theology is severely corrupted, but not absolutely extinguished. Michael Horton says, Yet our own corruption sees damnation in the majesty of God. We end up worshiping the creation and hiding from the creator. Because of our condition, God's power, wisdom, and glory inspire fear rather than devotion. Calvin, uh, that uh, Horton quotes, Calvin says, it appears that if men were taught only by nature, they would hold nothing certain or solid or clear-cut, but would be so tied to confused principles as to worship an unknown God. So, Horton talks about um, describing what Calvin's talking about here. There's a darkness in the human mind and heart uh, as a result of sin, apart from the work of the Spirit, that leads us not to worship him as we should, but to worshiping an array of gods and idols and things and doing things that are are contrary to God's law because we are we are sinful and fallen
one of the things I think about, Rachel, we, we both have missionaries in our family. And sometimes if you read missionary stories, um, especially from years ago, and there will be a society like I had a um, great uncle that they, that was a missionary in, in Mexico, but in the mountains of Mexico, away from any other people. In fact, their language was Spanish, but even very different. Um, and so sometimes, um, when missionaries have gone into those, uh, those areas, the, the, the community will have some sort of idea about God, um, that some, some sort of greater power that's in control. And I've heard, I've heard several different versions of this and they'll call him whatever they call him just, just based on, just based on natural theology. They, they have an idea that they're, that there is a God and that he is sovereign and, um, you know, some basic, basic things so that there's a creator. Right. And it is a blessing that, that we have those, uh, those commonalities so that when we do talk to people either in alter- other cultures or in our own, we can say, you know, you see these things and these things point to that there is a God and that he is our creator and that we should worship him and that, you know, that he is good and loving and, you know, and just. And these are things that we can say, you know, it is a blessing to have this, these commonalities, as I said, because um, it gives us a way of talking to people and evangelizing. So when we're talking then about um, natural theology, natural revelation, the issue is because nature is fallen, because we are fallen and our ability to reason is affected, only scripture, only special revelation is infallible. Um, Scott Swain in his thesis says, Revealed theology, this is special revelation, teaches with greater clarity the truths of natural theology. In addition to this, revealed theology teaches truths that are hidden to natural theology. Who God is, the Trinity, the person and work of the mediator, the means of covenant fellowship with God through Christ, the principle, the, the specific principles regarding the nature and ministry and worship of the church. So there are some things that we couldn't possibly know just by looking around. And, and especially what we can't possibly know is how to be saved. That is something that comes only from Scripture um, and from the, the work of the Spirit in us to enlighten us. Um, so natural theology then is subordinate to re- revealed theology uh, to spe- uh, special revelation. And... Swain says, natural theology cannot serve as the norm or judge for revealed theology. Revealed theology is the light in which natural theology sees light and by which it is perfect, perfected. And so what he's talking about there is, we have, while the two, natural theology and special revelation, are complementary, as we talked before, they're not contradictory, we have to be careful that we use them in the right order, that we use scripture to understand nature, and not use nature as the way in which we interpret scripture. Another thing that Scott Swain says in his article is that if we make natural theology the judge of um, special revelation, then he says we exaggerate natural theology's potential with respect to the knowledge of God and ignore the weaknesses and futility of human reason after the fall. Uh, or, and we also would be an error if we regard natural theology as sufficient for true religion. So it's it's not sufficient for us in the sense of 
it doesn't tell us everything we need to know to be saved. It doesn't tell us about how we should worship God. It doesn't tell us enough about who he is and how he's worked in, um, especially in redemption, in order to worship him properly and serve him properly. Bill Dennison says in his article that a true view of natural revelation is dependent upon a true view of special revelation found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his article is really helpful in reorienting the discussion. So if you're interested in this, you want to study a little more, his article is a great place to start with how to understand natural theology in light of special revelation. Rachel sent me several resources, which I'll include in the episode notes, and, and his article I found extremely, extremely helpful. I think that the result of maybe elevating a sort of natural theology um, in a wrong way and not um, making scripture superior to any natural theology is things that we see such as like moralistic therapeutic deism, where we, we know that where they, they know that there's a God, they know that there's a God that loves his people, and then they come up with their own conclusions of what that means, where it's more a God that, you know, we, we want to be good, and 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 he's there for us when we, we need him in more of a therapeutic way and instead of a savior. And he knows we're all doing our best. and Yes, Exactly. And so that, I mean, it's, it's dangerous. Um, it, because even within moralistic therapeutic deism, a lot of those people will call themselves Christians, but they're really elevating, um, natural theology and their own understanding above scripture. So one of the things, one of the reasons that Rachel and I wanted to talk about this is because all around us, we see how natural theology used to support unbiblical ideas. And just a couple of the examples uh, is racism. You know, we, we have a history of racism in our country and other places in the world. Um, also the idea that, that women are naturally inferior. And so this is one of the things that we really want to talk about. And so Rachel, how has natural theology been used to support these unbiblical ideas? Well, I'll start with with what we can see and what we know about how it was used or how it's been used to support uh, both racism and slavery. Um, when the Renaissance happened and uh, the classic Greek texts were revived or recovered or rediscovered, um, Many of the ideas in there, and this is one of the things I talk about in my book about how these ideas have been have influenced our ideas about men and women. But many of the these ideas were also used to um, support a, what the Christians at the time and their views on slavery. So um, Aristotle, or Aquinas uses Aristotle and the the ideas that Aristotle had about the natural inferiority, sorry, natural inferiority uh, of a slave to the master, uh, that there's some people that were just um, made to be ruled and some that, that were made to rule. So that some people are naturally rulers or masters and some people are naturally slaves. And so then Christians in the medieval and Renaissance era used these ideas and said, 
Okay, so while enslavement might be bad, there are some people who are just naturally inferior to others. And it sounds so horrible to say it because it is so horrible to say it. Um, so there was this belief, and it's often talked about in, in a natural order, that some people were more, so the Christians in Western Europe then are, are considered more um, civilized, more advanced, more, um, more morally superior, naturally superior to uh, what they considered more primitive groups. So anyone who doesn't have Western civilization then is primitive. Um, and even, you know, based on how people look. So if you had, it gets to the point, if you have darker skin, then that's less evolved. And you see this when Darwin comes along and these ideas that, you know, through the evolution of the species and the evolution of, of mankind from lower forms, that some people today are not as evolved as others. And it's, I mean, it, it makes me physically ill to talk about it this way and even describing it because it is so contrary to what we know as, as believers that men and women from all over the world are all made in the image of God. And all of us, regardless of what we look like or what countries we come from, are equally worth uh, or have equal worth um, intrinsic to us. Right? There aren't people who are naturally inferior to others because of skin color or nation of origin or, you know, education or whatever. You know, we're not more or less worthy because of what our characteristics are. One of the other things that comes up then, I'm sure some of you have probably heard of this before, is that there was a determination that, or a decision that people who were born in Africa, people who were born with darker skin must carry um, a particular the, the curse that's mentioned, uh, the curse of ham, right? That um, according to this interpretation, then all people who are from Africa are descended from um, ham or Canaan. And, and so then the dark skin then becomes the mark, uh, a, a mark of, of their inferiority, I guess I've seen it also the mark of Cain, which is interesting because there's no indication that any of Cain's descendants survived the flood. Um, but all of these things then are are ways that people took what they saw in nature and decided that these differences that they saw in nature supported what they wanted to believe already about being superior to other people. Um, and it was used then not only in the, the arguments for slavery, but then also later in the arguments in, um, in the U.S. Uh, and the civil rights movement and the segregation and all of these um, racial decisions that were made in the U.S. There's a lot of the same argumentation made that People are inferior because of their skin color or because of who they must be descended from or where they were from or what their cultures were like. And, you know, it's certainly true that people from different countries look different. We can see that. It's certainly true that people have different 
cultures from around the world. There are different uh, differences in different civilizations and what people do and, and customs and etc. But none of those natural differences that we can see are are properly understood as actual differences in the nature of men and women around the world. Yeah, I, I even think another example with my family is that um, Jews were treated this way. We see this in the we see this with the Holocaust. My my grandmother was living in Ukraine when the Bolsheviks and Stalin invaded, and some of um, her family, my family, were killed for that. My my grandmother and her brother escaped, but it was the same these same sorts of things. Unfortunately, there's a lot of examples throughout history. And certainly, I mean, and I'm you know I'm using the examples of Western civilization and the U.S. versus in, in slavery, but it is true that if you look at if you study any culture, any country, there is a lot of uh, you know fear of the other, uh, making you know, people that don't look like us or didn't come from our country, making them inferior to us. You know, so there's this us versus them in in lots of cultures. So it's a, it's a human nature issue um, that we are all capable of doing and, and being guilty of, but it, it has had specific application in our culture. And that's what we're talking about here. The other place that we've seen this, uh, the discussions of natural theology and application, it has to do with people talking about men and women. And so there are uh, a lot of discussions that came up. It's come up a lot through reviews of my book and reviews of Amy's book, Amy Bird's books and, and work, um, talking about women as being naturally inferior to men. Um, and it's, this, it's the, same, the same ideas behind the using natural theology to, to prove that races are different in a way that some are more superior, that some are superior to others that they look at the differences between men and women and say that, well, because men are, um, you know, in cultures around the world, you know, men are the ones in, in charge, and so then men are the ones with authority, so then men are naturally given to authority and women are naturally uh, meant to submit to that authority. And, and you know, we've talked about this, um, you know, in my book I talk about it, but we've also talked about it in other episodes about how this plays out. Um, so this, these are the two areas in particular in racism and then also in um, uh, men and women that we have seen a lot of application of natural theology in recent discussions. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. And we'll, we'll get into this maybe a little bit later, but there's a lot of really dangerous implications. Even we, we know very well the dangerous implications when we're talking about the racism, but there is also some very, very dangerous implications that are simply not biblical when we start using these sort of, um, examples of men and women and, and making them ontologically different. So, so Rachel, we've talked about ontology um, you know, as you mentioned in other episodes, you talk about it in your book. We've talked about it quite a bit when we've talked about um, the eternal subordination issues. 
So what is ontology and what does the Bible teach us uh, about this and why, also why is it important? So ontology deals with the nature of being. For our discussion, it's about our nature, who and what we are. Uh, looking biblically, who are we? Genesis 1 tells us uh, that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we have their humans male and female, created in God's image. God made Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. He made Eve from one of Adam's ribs or from his side. In our very nature, men and women are equally made in the image of God. And this is who we are. And this is the profound unity that we have in humanity. All of us, no matter what we look like, no matter where, we're, where we come from in, in the world, no matter what our background is, we are all made from Adam. Um, even Eve comes from Adam, so all of us have the same human nature from the first human, Adam. And that unity is when Adam, what Adam emphasizes when he sees Eve. He says, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And what we note, though, that when God made humanity in his image, he did so by making a man and a woman. Women are made in the image of God as much as men are. Men don't have more of God's image because they are men. Um, we are equal in worth, though we're not the same. Um, you know, as we've seen in scripture and talked about elsewhere, we are different and interdependent. Um, and this is where in this is where we talk about the limits of of natural theology, you know, we can look around, and we talked about these generalizations earlier, or even cultural expectations for men and women. Um, you know, girls may act a certain way, boys may act a certain way. In in general, women may be, you know, smaller, less muscular. Men may be taller, bigger. You know, but we have to be careful that even while we acknowledge these things, these generalizations, these expectations, um, those things do not make us men and women. They're not essential to being a man. If a man is shorter than his wife, he's still a man. Uh, if, a, if a woman is muscular, she's still a woman. If a girl plays with cars and sticks swords, she's still a girl. Right? And if, even if a boy plays with dolls, pretending to be a daddy, and I've seen this with boys who have baby siblings, right? they may hold a doll and pretend to hold it like their, their baby sibling. They're pretending to be a daddy. They're not pretending to be a mommy, right? because they're boys, right? not girls. Um, we live in, as I said, a fallen world that bears the scars of sin and death. Um, the world around us does show us many things, but the world shows us that nature is harsh and cruel, shows us a place where the strong dominate the weak, that self-preservation, self-advancement are status quo. What we see in scripture tells us more than what nature tells us about who we are, men and women made in the image of God, and what we have been made for to glorify God and to serve Him, and how we are to serve Him and each other. So everything that we see in, in nature, as we saw in uh, what we've talked about, and then also in the quotes from Calvin and Horton and Swain and Denison, is that all of our observations about the natural world have to be let, read through the lens of Scripture. The reason that this is important when we talk about ontology, and it's the reason it's so important that we get ontology correct, 
the differences in in these discussions often go back, go down to whether or not you believe there is one human nature with both there's a man, men and women under one human nature or whether there are two different human natures a male nature and a female nature from scripture we see that there is all only one human nature that's what we see in Genesis 1 man which means humanity male and female made in God's image and all humans are born from Ad- born from Adam and Eve have inherited Adam's fallen sinful human nature and then with the incarnation you have Jesus who is born as a man and he takes on a human nature and he also has a divine nature but it's very important to recognize that that human nature that Jesus took on in his incarnation represents all humanity, men and women. All humanity is united in Christ, and all believers, male and female, are united. I'm sorry, all humanity is united in Adam, in our physical human nature. And all believers, male and female, are united to Christ uh, through our salvation and through the work of the Spirit. And you see this in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The danger is, if we teach that men and women have separate natures, that men and women have, there's a male human nature and a female human, or a male nature and a female nature, then the question is, when Christ came, when Jesus was incarnate, and he took on flesh, did he live and die as a human, or only as a male? And if he died only as a male, then how are women saved? Because, uh, as the quote goes, what, what is, if what, since what is not assumed, in this case a female nature, can't be redeemed, which is a, uh, a quote from Gregory of Nazianzus. Nazianzus sorry. Um, and what that's saying is, if Jesus did not take on the same human nature that I have as a woman, then he did not live and die for me, then how am I saved? And that is an extremely, extremely serious implication for the argument that men and women have separate natures. Wouldn't it also have implications regarding Adam's sin? Sure. <laughs> yeah, were, were we not under that sin? Well, yeah, well, we are. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. There's so, there's, there's so many things that this affects regarding our theology. Well, and I have seen an argument by by some who are trying to work through these things and, and arguing from the position of two you know, different human natures, the male nature and female nature, that, well, that while Christ represents the male, uh, then somehow the spirit represents the female. And I mean, it, it gets into some, some really... That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, mental gymnastics, hermeneutical gymnastics that are not not a very steady, sound foundation to be on. So, in kind of summarizing what we've talked about, um, I know this is a lot of information, and I hope that you'll read some of the resources because there's a lot more that can go into it. And if you do have questions, be sure to ask me, and we can address them on a, a future episode. But um, we see in Scripture that 
that there is a distinction between God and man. There is a divine nature and there is a human nature, right? Uh, between the creator and the created. Uh, we see in scripture a distinction between sinful human nature, what we do according to the flesh, and redeemed human nature, what's according to the spirit, right? But scripture does not divide human nature into a male nature and a female nature. It says, yes, that we are men and women, made in the image of God, but we were all represented in man, in Adam, in Adam, uh, and that human nature is one united human nature. So, the world around us, nature, may show us that men and women are different, right? But God created us male and female in his image. Our bodies do demonstrate that there are important differences between men and women, uh, and we should raise our children as male or female based on their biological sex. But, and I say this in my book, we need to be careful about conforming to narrow or wooden definitions of masculinity and femininity. And I love the quote by Gary Walton. Uh, it says, The notion of what it means to be female or what it means to be male is extremely broad. In fact, there should be no singular conception of what it means to be masculine or feminine. So, as I've said here in other episodes and in my book as well, when we define masculinity and femininity, uh, it need, our definitions need to be biblical. It needs to reflect the diversity of expression that we see in Scripture. Um, it needs to be applicable across cultures and across time. Um, and, you know, for us, what that means is, you know... Yes, girls may play with dolls, boys may make sticks into weapons, but that those things are not what make them boys and girls. So we should just be careful about how we look at preferences and um, characteristics and how we apply that to what is essential in who we are as men and women. And we also need to remember that whatever nature shows us around, and whatever our culture tells us, whatever the world around us, uh, how it tries to influ influence us, Scripture teaches us who we are and what we are. And we are co-laborers, united in creation and united in Christ. We are made in the image of God. Our human nature is united in our creation and represented in Adam. It is fully represented in Christ's humanity. Christ alone is the hope for both men and women. We have one mediator, one savior, one gospel, one way of salvation. The world may very well seek to divide what God has brought together, but we need to remember that we are men and women made in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are the body of Christ, and we are called to pursue, pursue Christian virtues the fruit of the Spirit, and the armor of God. We must serve God and each other, not as the world would have us do, but out of brotherly love for each other. I wanted to mention a couple of things before we sign off. First, we do still have the books available that Rachel and I released on Amazon in recent weeks, the sermon notes notebooks and the sermon notes notebooks for children. Also, catechism and scripture memory books. And then also we have some 
prayer and scripture reading journals and some Bible reading plan journals. So I'm going to put a link in the episode notes which links to each of those. And then also um, I wanted to mention this Relight app that I have been using. It's a free Reformed Theology and Bible Study web app. Appreciate it. One, one of the things I utilize a lot is Calvin's commentary. And I've previously been accessing it on the on another site, but I'm going to start accessing it on this relight.app site because they have it organized really well. If you're doing some study and you want to use Calvin's commentary, it's organized really well. You can search right for whatever you are looking for. So I definitely recommend checking that out. And then they also have the catechisms and confessions. And in, not only do they have the Westminster, but for you Baptists out there, there is the 1689 London Baptist Confession. So really there's something here for everybody. And they're going to be adding a lot more. But check it out so you can see what's on there already. You can also sign up for updates from when they add stuff. I know that Gal and her husband that are doing this, she's in our group, and I really like the vision for what they're hoping to have, really kind of a trustworthy, reformed source online. Check that out at relight.app. And we've got some other really good episodes coming up this summer. We've gotten a lot of questions about parenting teens. So that's one that's going to be coming up. There's some other episodes that come directly from suggestions that we have gotten. So if you have anything that you would like us to address, feel free to email us at theologygals at gmail.com. Did want to mention lastly, and this I'm going to link in the episode notes, I know that there was some disagreement from some people regarding our episode on Newthetic Counseling, although the positive feedback was far greater than the disagreement. But Russ, who was our guest on that episode, thought it would be a good idea for him to respond to some of that negative feedback. And so he did a YouTube video on his YouTube channel. It's it's not very long. I highly recommend checking it out because he's able to clarify some things that maybe were misunderstood from our episode. And definitely in that episode, there's also resources and on Russ's YouTube channel video that I'm linking, he also has some resources if you want to understand that subject more. Glory Cloud podcast did some excellent, excellent episodes, and that's with Todd Bordeaux, Rachel's pastor, who we've had on this podcast, and Chris Cahey. So some different things to check out this week. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.